0: 1 Samuel chapter 7. So last week, we uh, looked, the Philistines have captured the Ark of the Covenant. And conventional wisdom of the day means if uh, if we have the Ark, then, then our God is stronger than your God. The Philistines had beaten the Israelites in a battle. They'd actually beat them twice, beat them soundly the second time. 30,000 Israelite troops had died. Uh, the, the, so the Philistines take the Ark and bring it back ...to one of their cities. They put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. That's him. He's a fish god. And the, the, again, the, the conventional wisdom is since we beat y'all, our god is stronger than your god. So we're going to take this symbol of your god, the Ark of the Covenant, and put it in the temple of our god, Dagon. And then God goes about over the course of seven months uh, really con, con, confounding that conventional wisdom is what he does... The, the Philistines go into Dagon's temple, and the image of that God has fallen down in a posture of worship before the ark His head, and his hands have been broken off, which is a sign of victory. And then it's not just within that temple. It's in the city. The people in this city, this Philistine city, it's one of those, I think that it starts off in um, Ashdod. You see people getting tumors, and they say, we don't want this anymore. Their God, your God the, the hand of the God of Israel is too strong for us. Too strong for our God and too strong for us to get rid of the ark. So they send it to another one of their cities. They send it over there to Gath. And then all those guys get tumors. And they say, We're, we don't want it either. And so they send it to this other city, Ekron. And all those guys get tumors. And they say, we, we send it back. We don't want it anymore. So after seven months of the ark being in Philistia, they send it back to Israel on a cart drawn by these two cows. We talked about all that Last week, the, the ark goes first to a town, Beth Shemesh, that light blue dot, and then winds up in a town called Kiriath-Jerim, that dark blue dot. And so that's where we were last week. We're fast-forwarding 20 years to today. So 20 years between the, what we looked at last week and what we're going to pick up today, starting in chapter 7, verse 2. So 20 years later, then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. All the people of Israel turn back to the Lord. So that's a radically different spiritual posture than where we left off last week. Last week, what we saw is the Ark, the, the scene that we saw in Israel is the Ark winds up in this town, Beth Shemesh, which is a Levitical town. So that means everyone in that town works in the temple. And this particular town is full of people whose job it was to take care of the Ark. That was a particular family within the Levites. Their job was to take care of the ark. So you think, when the ark gets to their town, they will know what to do. That was their heritage. It was something that had been passed down from father to son to father to son for generations. And when the ark comes to their town on this cart, drawn by these two cows, they respond with joy and with celebration, with worship, and it looks great. And they also respond with deep, deep irreverence. The ark, they should know better. They know, you can't even look at the ark. Only the, the high priest can go into the holy place where the ark is and only one time a year. No one else even gets to go in there. No one gets to look at it. When the ark is moved from place to place, it's covered with layers and layers of materials. Nobody can touch it. It has these poles that these guys from Beth Shemesh would carry. They knew all of that. And the ark winds up in their town and 70 of them open it up and peek inside. And God kills them. He judges them for that. And their response, it's not contrition, it's not repentance, it's not to ask for forgiveness. They say, get rid of it. We don't want it anymore. Where can the ark go? Just like the Philistines, this pagan nation. When God judges them, they say, we're we're not interested in anything to do with this God anymore. This town of Levites, this town whose men had been entrusted with the care of the ark, their response, when God judges them for their irreverence, is not to repent. It's not to ask for forgiveness. It's to say, we don't want it either. We don't want it either. We're done with this ark. That's the condition of the people 20 years ago. And now we see that all of the people are turning to the Lord. Their hearts are soft. They're seeking after him. That phrase, turned to the Lord, it means to to lament or to weep and to seek after. That's what they're doing. The catalyst, I think, is the 20 years. For 20 years, the Philistines have been oppressing the Israelites. They sent the ark back. They didn't want anything to do with the ark. But they had beaten the Israelites militarily, and they were continuing to exercise rule over them for 20 years. It's the same pattern that we see played out for 300 years in the book of Judges. Israel sins, and then God allows them to be oppressed by a foreign nation. And then Israel cries out for deliverance. Israel repents and cries out for deliverance. That's what we see here in the verse that we just read. And then God raises up a judge, or your Bible may say a leader, someone to deliver them and someone to lead them. And during the lifetime of that judge, Israel does great. And then the judge dies and then they start the cycle all over again. And that's what we see here, what what we've seen in Samuel. Spiritual spiritual condition of the people is wretched. They're in sin. And so God allows the the Philistines to oppress them. And after 20 years of that, the Israelites cry out for deliverance. And we'll see how God responds. So Samuel, we haven't seen him since chapter 4. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourself of the foreign gods and the asterisks and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and asterisks and they served the Lord only. So Samuel takes advantage of the spiritual condition of the people. Again, we haven't seen him since chapter 4, it's been at least 20 years since we've seen anything from Samuel. He's a prophet. Everyone in the nation recognizes he hears from the Lord, but he doesn't have any leadership role from what we can tell in chapters 4 and 5 and 6. And that's when the whole country is going off the rails. They're not, they're not seeking God, and so they're not uh, consulting this one who hears from him. Samuel Red means stop, right? Green means go. Maybe new battery. It's working now. It's still red. Don't worry. All right. One of the things we're known for is our uh, technical proficiency and our smoothness. If you stay here for long, you'll recognize we're very smooth all the way around. We never have any drops. Our plumbing always works. It's never hot in here. What? Just Did you change batteries that fast? She's the only one. That... Alright, that's going to be a great recording too. That little section of it. We probably won't save that. All right. So Samuel takes advantage of the spiritual condition of the people and he says, if y'all are serious and you actually do want to turn back to the Lord, here are three things you need to do. The first is a negative. You've got to get rid of these foreign gods. Get rid of the Baals, that's the male god, the asterisk, that's the female god. You've got to get rid of them. So remember, Israel, uh, were led into the promised land. That land was occupied. They were led into land where people, currently, where people lived, and the book of Joshua is about the cleansing of the land. It's a brutal book, God cleansing this land, but all of the people are not done away with. Israel is unfaithful in some ways. The people are, uh, are, are stubborn in some ways, and so the, the land is not completely cleansed, and the people who continue to live there continue to worship their gods. And Israel takes up the worship of them as well. And Samuel says, you've got to be done with that. You've got to get rid of those foreign gods. That's a negative. It's a getting rid of positive. You've got to commit yourself to the Lord. Establish your heart in him. And this is not a one-time thing. Ongoing, you have to serve the Lord only. If you're serious about coming back to him, that's what it takes. Get rid of your idols. Commit to the Lord. And then serve him only moving forward. And the people do that. So Samuel says, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day, they fasted, and there they confessed, We've sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. So what we see is Samuel calls a sacred assembly. He calls the nation together. Y'all want to return to the Lord. I gave you these three conditions, and you're honoring those conditions. So let's all get together. Samuel prays for them. The prophet of the nation, he prays for them. That's actually a priestly function that Samuel plays. And then as a nation, they repent and they confess. They confess their sins and they repent. Something we never see anywhere else in the Bible is this idea of pouring water before the Lord. We don't know exactly what that is. It seems to be connected to their fasting. It's almost as if they're saying our desire to be reconciled to you, God, is stronger than our desire even for water. And we know water is essential for life. So that seems to be what's going on there. We never see that anywhere else in the Bible. But what we do pick up is the people's sincere and deep repentance and their desire to be reconciled to the Lord. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. So remember, the Philistines still are exercising some level of political rule over Israel. They don't want them to assemble. When the, the, uh, the nation assembles, it means, well, they could lead a rebellion. They could revolt against us. And so the Philistines here, the Israelites have gathered together, and so they're going to attack them. The Israelites are scared because the last time they fought the Philistines, they got trounced. 30,000 of their men got killed. They're not interested in fighting them right now. Their response is very different from what we see in chapter 4. The last time the Philistines are aggressive towards the Israelites. In chapter 4, the Israelites are presumptuous. They're arrogant. They say, we're going to get the Ark. We're going to bring it into battle. And because we have the Ark, we have God on our side. And they get, again, they get annihilated. In this section, what we see is they're scared because they got beat last time. But rather than presumption, rather than arrogance, they say to Samuel, pray for us. Ask God to deliver us. There's a level of humility in the Israelites. And Samuel responds that he prays to the Lord on behalf of his people. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic That they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way. And set it up between Mizpah and Shin. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israelite territory. So God responds to Samuel's prayers. Samuel prays and God thunders from heaven. So battles are fought on two levels, understanding of the Old Testament. Men are fighting on the ground, and the gods of the nations are fighting in the air. And so something meteorological, like thunder, I don't think I said that right, like thunder, would cause the Philistines to say, their God's winning. Baal was a storm god. And so if Yahweh is thundering, they're going, he's beating our God. And so they panic, and the Israelites slaughter them. And Samuel sets up a rock called Ebenezer, which means... Thus far the Lord has helped. It means stone of my help is what it means. So thus far in time, in our history, God has helped us up to this point. And thus far geographically, up to this point of dirt, this is where we beat the Philistines. God has helped us. Radically different outcome from the last time Israel fought Philistia. Now here we have a summary. This last part is just a summary of Samuel's ruler uh, leadership. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel. And Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as Israel's leader for all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was. And there he also held court for Israel, and he built an altar there to the Lord. So that's, that's a summary of Samuel's time as judge. He's the last judge that we see. He's a transitional figure between the judges and, the mon- and a monarchy. He's the last one. And the picture we have is his rule was characterized by peace and by security. So the, the Philistines are the external enemies, and they're, they're, God's hand is against them. They don't mess with Israel during Samuel's reign. In fact, Israel's territory expands. They take back from the Philistines territory that they've lost over the last 20 years. And then internally, the Amorites, that's a general name for the people who live in the land, who are not Israelites, the people um, who worship these foreign gods. There's peace between them and the Israelites as well. So there's no foreign oppression, and internally there's peace. There's safety. There's security. Samuel makes a little circuit every year and serves as a judge. He helps people with their hard cases and questions. And he sets up camp in his own town of Ramah. And people come to see him. And it's kind of this, ideal, this uh, idealistic picture of what life is like with God as your king and one of his chosen people as your leader. When all of the people's hearts are soft towards him. I was, I was reading that and the thing that uh, a couple of things jumped out at me. What I want us to focus on... Bible's a big book, lots of stuff in there, and it's been around for a really long time, and it can be hard to remember what exactly is in the Bible and what just sounds like something that's in the Bible. And so here's a little quiz. So is it in the Bible or not? And I don't want you to raise your hand because I don't want you to feel dumb if you answer incorrectly. This is a safe place. God will not give you more than you can bear. I kind of want to know what you think, but I don't want you to raise your hand. Yes or no? No. First Corinthians ten thirteen says God will not tempt you beyond what you are able to bear. That's not doesn't say that He's not going to give you more than you can bear. Money is the root of all evil. No. Excellent. First Timothy six ten. The love of money is the root of all evil, but money is not the root of all evil. This too shall pass? Nah. I don't know where that came from. I think it's like an English proverb. God works in mysterious ways. That's a hymn. You wouldn't know that because we don't sing them here. William Cowper <laughs> wrote that. We did sing one this morning. It's for Jimmy Drew, wherever he is in the room. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Actually, no. Proverbs 13.24 says, The parent who uh, doesn't... Let me think what it says exactly. i got to look it up. It says you hate your child, not that you... Hold on, i got to look it up. I had it and I lost it. 13.24. That's not it. Whoever spares the rod hates their children. The one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. So that's a bit of a... It's close, but not exactly. And the rod, there's probably a shepherd's rod, probably not the one, the spanking stick that you use. Um, Cleanliness is next to godliness. John Wesley said that. Not Jesus. God helps those who help themselves. You know that's not in there. That's the one we're going to talk about. Two Ebenezer's in 1 Samuel. One in chapter 4, one in chapter 7. In chapter 4, it's a town. It's this place, a city, town, where Israel and Philistine and Philistia battle. And the Israelites bring the ark out of presumption and arrogance. If we have the ark, we have God. So we're going to bring the ark into battle, and God's going to deliver us. And he doesn't. If Ebenezer means... Stone of my help. But that in that city, God didn't help Israel at all. He did not come to their rescue. He allowed them to be defeated. He allowed the ark to be captured. Twenty years later in chapter 7, the people humble themselves before the Lord. They ask Samuel, pray to God for us. He does. God responds. They, they defeat the Philistines. And Samuel sets up a rock, and he names it Ebenezer. God has helped us thus far. The only difference between those two Ebenezer's is the condition of the hearts of the people. In chapter four, they're arrogant and presumptuous; they're proud. In chapter seven, they're humble and dependent. Dependent. They recognize their need for the Lord. Two Ebenezer's. I think it's, it's on purpose for us to see those twenty years apart, same two nations fighting, different outcomes, and the only difference is the condition of the hearts of God's people. one place, God doesn't help. And the reason he doesn't help is because the people are independent and proud. And in one place, he does help. And the reason he helps is because they ask. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who ask for help. In chapter 4, the people help themselves. We're going to go get the ark, and we're going to bring it into battle. In chapter 7, they ask God for help, and he responds. God never despises humility. He always responds to humility. Throughout the Bible, he always responds. And when you hear that word humility, I don't know what comes to your mind. There's a couple of different nuances of it. One is the sense of kind of laying down on your face before the Lord. This sense of contrition around sin. And that's occasional. That's not every day. It's when you're convicted of your sin. It's what we see here at this sacred assembly where the people confess and they fast. They're convicted of 20 years of walking away from the Lord. And so there is, there is an emotional response to that. There's weeping. There's fasting. There's pouring out water on the ground. The greater part of humility is dependence. It's the idea of a child reaching to his parents, recognizing... Those of you who have kids, they don't have a problem asking for help. It's what they do. That's what it means to be dependent. That's a daily posture before the Lord. Uh, 1 Peter 5 says that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves before the Lord so that in due time... He can lift you up. That's that idea of childlike dependency, recognizing our need for him. It's the difference between chapter 4 Ebenezer and chapter 7 Ebenezer. The Israelites have humbled themselves. Yes, they've laid before God in contrition for their sin. But ongoing what they've done is they've said, we recognize our need for you. So when the Philistines come to attack, their response is, God, you've got to help us. We need you to deliver us. Samuel, don't stop praying for us. Keep praying. Radically different heart posture than what we see in chapter 4. The elders go to the tabernacle and they take the ark and they bring Hophni and Phinehas, the two priests, and they come back and there's a haughtiness about them. It's almost like the ark is a good luck charm. If we have it, then God is with us and he will defeat our enemies. And there's no sense that God has any freedom to do what he wants. And there's no sense that God cares at all about the character or behavior of his people. He's tied to this box, is what they're thinking. We have the box, therefore we have him. For for all of us, humility, that's the key for us when it comes to our ongoing relationship with the Lord. At times, you will be deeply convicted of sin, and your response is to get on your face before the Lord in contrition. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's not a daily thing for most of us. The daily posture of humility is this idea of childlikeness, recognizing our need for the Lord, recognizing that apart from Him, that there are no good things. He opposes the proud, those who live independently of Him. He gives grace to the humble, those who recognize their need for Him. He can't give grace to the proud. Because they don't recognize their need for grace, so they're not asking. God doesn't help those who help themselves. He only helps those who ask. Asking is the posture, it's an expression of humility. Do you need an Ebenezer this morning? Is there a place where you would say, I need God to help me? Are you willing to ask him? Jesus says it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And one of the reasons is because it's hard for the rich to acknowledge their need. That's why it's easier for the poor to say yes to Jesus. Their whole life they're reminded of the fact that they need somebody else to help meet their needs and take care of them. For those of us who are rich, it's not that that way. We're independent and self-sufficient. So it can be difficult for us to make the connection that we actually need the Lord in some area of our life. We're all rich by just about any standard. This morning, do you have an area of need? Are you willing to ask God to help you? Thinking about the Israelites, what was tripping them up, these foreign gods. They were actually the gods of the land. They were the local gods. The Israelites had moved into Canaan at the leading of the Lord. And they had cleansed the land partially, but not completely. These Baals and Ashtoreth worship remained. And the Israelites were constantly tempted To start chasing these other gods. They never quit worshipping Yahweh. They just started worshipping other gods in addition to him. That's why Samuel says you've got to get rid of those gods and serve Yahweh only. For many of us, we're functional polytheists. We love Jesus, but we worship some other gods as well. What are the gods of the land for us? What are the gods that they are ubiquitous? Everywhere we look, they're there. It's just assumed that we would follow and serve these other gods. For the Israelites, it's Baal and Ashtoreth. Where is it where we live in Marietta and Cobb County? What are the gods that are just out there that you bump up against on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, week after week and month after month and year after year? We are tempted to put our trust and our hope in those versus our trust and our hope in Jesus. In addition to our trust and our hope in Jesus, we divide our loyalty and we divide our um, we divide our trust. It's hard to remain humble before the Lord, to recognize our need and dependence for him when all of these other idols that are, again, everywhere where we live, when they're competing for our attention and our devotion. I thought of three. There's plenty more. And, and for you. They may be different. And again, think of these as gods of the land. They're just out there in the air that we breathe and the water that we swim in. These are the gods that people would say, yes, we we follow and we worship them. Kids is a big one. It's not one for all of you, but it's a big one. And, and, And what kids say to us, the God of children, it's not your literal children, it's the God of children. What it says to us is wrap your life around the happiness and achievement of your kids. That's your number one priority. That is your highest and your best is to wrap your life around the achievement and the happiness of your children. You sacrifice everything you have for them. You hear that in pop culture. You hear that walking around the streets. People who would say that is the highest and best. That is their goal as people is to give their lives away for the sake of their children. Money, huge one where we live big time. It doesn't, for for money, what money says, and I think money actually uh, competes with God more than any other idol uh, in our city. What money says is, trust me. Trust me to meet your needs. Jesus says that that if we seek first the kingdom and and his righteousness, all these things, clothes, food, what we need will be given to us. What money says is, don't worry about that, I can do that for you. And it's easy to trust money when the grocery store takes your debit card, they don't take your promise from God. That does not You can't give them a Bible verse. You have to give them money. Money says, trust me for it to, to be your source of identity. You're defined by what you have, and the more you have, the better person you are. Your net worth determines your self-worth. I'm sure somebody said that before. It's not true. What we see from Jesus at his baptism, the Father speaking, this is my son whom I love with him. I'm well, please, that's nothing to do with what Jesus has. He says, I don't have a place to lay my head. I'm a wandering nomad. I'm homeless. I live on the charity of other people in the way the Father provides for me through them. What money says is, trust me for, your, for, for good things. I can provide what you, I, I can give you whatever you want in life. And what Jesus says is, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? What money looks for is it wants to say, trust me, in places where Jesus says, no, trust, trust me. Comfort, big one where we live also. Think of comfort as uh, security, safety, well being. What comfort says is, let me, let me comfort, let me well being, let me safety and security, let me be the, the, uh, the defining value for you. Let me be the grid through which you evaluate the decisions. ...that you're going to make in your life. Rather than obedience... ...run everything that you do... ...through the filter of your own well-being... ...and your own comfort... ...and your own security and safety. Rather than... ...again, the the filter of obedience to Jesus... ...which very, very well may cost us... ...all of those things. Those to me are... ...they're just... ...those are the... ...again, they're ubiquitous. Everywhere you go, those gods are out there. And it's just assumed... That we would follow those things. And you can actually justify all of those things on some level. You can use the Bible to justify all of those things on some level. For sure. And it's not for any of us that we would worship those things instead of Jesus. We just worship those things in addition to Jesus. And they become competing gods in our hearts and in our minds. And when God says... I oppose the proud and I give grace to the humble. It's difficult for us to maintain dependence upon him over time. When these other gods are saying, well, why don't you depend on me a little bit? Or when these other gods are saying, why don't you value me a little bit? Or these other gods are saying, why don't you use me a little bit? Or these other gods are saying, I can do that for you as well. And when you look around and other people who are pursuing those gods and you see their lives are moving along well, what happened to the Israelites? They look around and they see the people in the land and their lives are fine. Their lives are going well. And so it's very easy to say those gods are working for them. They're praying to Baal, the storm god, and they had good crops. Why wouldn't we do that also? Those are They're nice people. We enjoy being around them. The same thing can happen for us. We become tempted in our own hearts. Our hearts become divided. Again, we don't replace Jesus, we just add things to him. And when Samuel calls Israel back, he says, you've got to get rid of all of those things. Commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only. What would that look like for you? Are there any gods that you need to be rid of this morning? Any gods that are competing with Jesus for loyalty and affection and devotion in your heart? Any gods who are vying for some level of your trust? If God in heaven, the Father of Jesus, is saying, trust me, depend on me, are there any other voices that are saying, why don't you, you can depend on us a little bit as well? In this area of your life, why don't you trust us? It's going to be hard for God to give you grace in that area if they're competing gods. Let's pray. God, I pray we'd have eyes to see. This is where we live, and for many of us it's where we've lived four years. It's like a fish can't describe water, it's all it knows. And this is all we need, eyes to see the gods in our land. And I pray you'd show each one of us where we're tempted and when we're tempted to worship those gods alongside of you. can be easy sometimes when you hear this idea of God being jealous and put away other gods and sometimes like this, God had this big ego and I, I don't think it's true at all. God recognizes no other God, they're false, they're, they're fake, they're idols, they, they can't deliver on the promise that they make to you. Only He can. It's, he's the only one who's worthy of worship. absolutely. And he's the only one who can make good on his word to us. Nothing else can deliver over time. That's why Jesus says that's all sand. It's all sand. And you don't want to build your house on sand. Because when things get difficult, when the floods come, your house will fall. Only the house built on the rock can withstand the flood. These false gods, these gods of the land, that, that, that is sand, trusting in them. When the waters rise, they, they can't. They're incapable of supporting your life. They're incapable of delivering on the promises that they've made. God, I pray that you would show us here this morning. Where am I? Who am I tempted To serve and worship and honor. I don't need to look at my neighbors. Who for me? Is it one of those that was on the screen? Is it someone else? Something else? God, would you convict me? And you can pray that in your own heart. God, convict me. For some of you, you may need to lay on the ground. In contrition, and that's fine. And then God, would you move me by your spirit. To live ongoing As a child, recognizing my need and my dependence for you, daily asking for your grace. Would you help me rightly order the goods in my life, all of these good things that you've given me? Would you give me grace to rightly order and rightly in those relationships? Bo's going to sing and over us and I just, I just want y'all to have some time just before the Lord as he sings and kind of the theme of this song is really about a hunger for the Lord and that's our theme for the whole month. I feel like that's a key to so many things if our desire for God increases and so many of these other things begin to fall into place for us and that may be where you need to start you don't you may not need to start with the idols you may need to start with a basic, hunger and thirst for him asking the Lord to stir that up in you before Samuel called the people to repentance they first had had come to a place where they recognized their need and then they were ready to repent and to get rid of these false idols and serve the Lord and so maybe in your own heart you're not even in a place yet where you would say yes I, I recognize that so God would you stir up a hunger in me for you would you show me what it is to seek first your kingdom I don't have a clue what that looks like my life. What does it mean to seek first your kingdom?